Welcome to the Human Things Podcast, episode five. Okay, we have a lot to cover, I think. We'll see what we have to cover. But one thing I know, right out of the gates, I want to talk about uh, as we, we start. We're going to have Leah Savas come on from World News Group to talk about the book that she co-wrote with Marvin Alasky, The Story of Abortion in America. It's a great book. I, I, I encourage everybody and anybody who's interested in this subject to read it. It, it is a look at the story of abortion in America through primary resources where they're gathering stories, newspaper articles, letters, journal entries, sermons, anything they can get so that Americans that lived during those times can communicate to us how abortion was seen, viewed, fought over, all the way going back to the, the mid-1600s. So it is a long story of abortion in America, but it is a great book, and we'll be talking to Leah Savas shortly about that. Before I go there, though, on the, the less important side, but, but to me, interesting, or at least I'm about to make a claim, I guess, that to me, I, I came to realize. First of all, almost every band that we know of, we know of as a one-hit wonder, right? Most music is, most of the music out there comes from people who have one good song in them. It just, they have one good song and then they go away, which was a terribly disappointing thing as a kid. I remember anytime that somebody would come out with a, a new song that I thought was great and you're like, this is going to be a great band and you go and buy their album and you find out that everything else they make is just garbage. But they had one great song and that's true of most and then you have the bands like the beatles the rolling stones aerosmith nirvana i mean people who just transcend their their genre who, who crank out hits more hits than you think are reasonable the beatles by the way it's an absurd number of songs that they were able to produce in a, in a relatively short period of time it, it feels like they were around forever and then you actually look at the span of time where they existed even particularly like from 67 to 70 where they just cranked out everything, everything. I mean, it was insane the, the amount of music that they were able to produce, the number of great songs they were able to produce in that short period of time, whether you're a Beatles fan or not. You know, Michael Jackson, Prince, these people who just made massive numbers of hits. And then there's everybody else. And this is the group that fascinates me the most right now because I was having a conversation with several people over the last couple of weeks. Because anytime something fascinates me and you're around me, you are then required to listen to me rant about it. That's just the way that this goes. And so here, here is the thesis on which I was operating on. There are the greats, and then there's the one-hit wonders. And in between there, you got to find the people that can give you a solid set of three songs. Like three, they gave us three great songs. And that to me is something admirable, right? Because if you can give us one that's awesome. I, that's all I really need from you. If you made a great song and that was all you had to contribute to music history, super, move on with your life. You've done us a service. If you're able to give us a whole lifetime of music, also awesome, but terribly rare. But if you gave us three great songs, for some reason, I'm just, I find that really, really fascinating, really cool. And, and for example, for example, why we're talking about this is because I realized, and every once in a while I think there's these underappreciated people. There's people we just don't talk about that we should be talking about, movies that we should be watching, things that didn't make it or survive, whatever. Hall of Notes. <laughs> I want to tell you, they gave us three great songs. 
I'm getting I'm getting a look from JD right now. They gave us three great songs. You don't he he's shaking his head. No, you, you you're wrong. Think about not you're you're gonna get caught up with Man Eater. You're gonna get caught up with later Hall and Oates, and you're gonna think what is this idiot talking about? Let's start with She's Gone. That's a killer track. If you play She's Gone at any given moment, it, it, that's a killer. Tr- it can go on any playlist at any time. Hit She's Gone, and you're going to be, you're going to say, how could this possibly be the same band that made Private Eyes? I mean, this is not the same quality of song. She's Gone, that that song plays, and it plays everywhere at any time. Rich Girl. Oh, come on. Come on. Rich Girl has got a snappy. T- I mean, it's a it's a good song. It's a good. Don't. He's turning his. I don't care. No. Rich Girl's solid. It's a good song. Now, now, now here comes the tricky part. Do you choose Sarah Smiles, which is a lovely little track? I like Sarah Smiles. That's strong. If you're going to have a set of three songs, uh, or do you put You Make My Dreams Come True? Eh, which one? You, I mean, if you want, I think if you're going to try to be cooler, you're going to go with Sarah Smiles. Uh, if you're going to admit that you like '80s music or something like that, you're going to you make my dreams come true. Either way, that even gets you to four, arguably, a three-song set from Hall and Oates. They can put together a strong three-song set, right? They can. They can do it. I think they can. I think that's a good. If I were at a bar and they're like Hall and Oates is coming out, and I'm like, oh my gosh, you're not going to play Man Eater Order, and they start with She's Gone, I'm like, okay, you got me. You got me for a couple more songs. Give me a three songs. So that to me is something I just, I wanted to put out there. Hall and Oates, a little underappreciated. You you look at their later work and you think there's something wrong there, but then you, you go back and you listen to She's Gone. And I'm actually going to argue that She's Gone is so good that you ought to give a couple of those other songs a little bit more grace because She's Gone rocks. That is a great song. All right. That was stupid. I know, but, but, but I was there. That's where I was the last week. I was arguing with people that, that Hall of Notes is underappreciated. And I was like, if, if they gave us nothing more than She's Gone, they did us a service. But they gave us more than She's Gone. And I like those other three songs. Um, I, 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 I think Rich Girl is a great song. I can play Rich Girl at any time and be happy. All the time. I just think Rich Girl is a fun song. You, listen to it. You might be thinking right now, this, this is weird. Go back and listen to Rich Girl. You're like, yeah, that is. There is something snappy about it. They got something going on there. Okay, so now let's move to more important things. I, we've got guests lined up. A- apparently, what we've done in the first four episodes has had people interested in joining us now. And so I have people that are excited. They say they're excited about joining us. So next week, I'm going to be recording an episode talking about this book right here. The reason I want to talk about this book, this book happening by Annie Arnaud, is that she won the Nobel prize for literature. And also it is a film, a movie coming out. And so it is an interesting story. I've invited my friend, Megan Allman from life training Institute, summit ministries who works with stand to reason as well. She's going to come on and talk because she loves art. She loves the beautiful. She loves talking about those sort of things. And so I called her and said, Hey, I want to talk about this novel. Would you want to come on and talk about this novel with me? We'll be recording that next week. Now, before we get to Leah Savas, there is another thing that I wanted to talk about. Maybe more than one thing, but let's see how this goes. We have a video of the Oxford Union 
an abortion rights panel. This is an older video. It's from March 4th, 2008. What happened was a friend of mine posted a video of a gentleman talking about something from the Oxford Union, and then he disrupted my entire day because he posted it, I saw it, and then I spent the rest of the day sorting through Oxford Union videos because I had just had no discipline when it comes to that sort of thing. If you get that into my head, I am just lost for hours. Now, and, and I will convince myself there's value here. I mean, this is Oxford Union. They're intellectuals. They're talking about important things. The reality is I've just gotten lost in a hole on, on the internet. But I came across this panel, and of course, what I do for them, I want to hear what these people say. It was an abortion rights panel at Oxford Union. My original thought was that they were going to have some balance to the panel. They didn't. They had three people representing the pro-choice side. And I watched it, and it's, it's a little over an hour long. But what I wanted to talk about today, and I may come back to other parts of it later, uh, is, is going to be Elise Hogue, I believe is how you pronounce her name, former president of NARAL. And she has something to say that I think is interesting at this point in the panel. So can we get that video up? And I appreciate the, the question because it's something we actually discuss a lot. In the States, one of the really interesting things when you unpack that number is absolutely, if you ask people if they're pro-life or pro-choice, it splits about 50-50. If you go on to say, okay, regardless of your personal views, do you believe that the government should intervene in your neighbor's decision? Or it's, it's 70% and above that say, no, I'm a majority of people who say I'm personally pro-life have much more complicated views about what they think should be criminalized and what the government should do. So I, I agree with Anne, it's in the nuance. And one of the things you hear frequently in the United States, um, abortion providers say is, is that most people, not everyone, but most people will express that they have three exceptions, even if they are personally anti-abortion. And it's, it's most often life of the mother, rape, frequently, and me. And that's what they'll tell you, and, and, and abortion providers will tell you stories of, we have many, many protesters at clinics um, across the United States, of protesters that are there every week, and almost all of them will say at least once around the back door, a protester will show up, either for herself or her daughter, because everybody has a story and everybody thinks that they are the exception and everyone thinks I know what's best for me even if I don't trust you to know what's best for you. And I think that is the question. Yes, we should have the conversations, but at the end of the day, the, question, the ultimate question is, am I comfortable being judge and jury for everyone else even if I don't know their circumstances? And am I comfortable with the consequences of being judge and jury, because as Sinead was saying, in the United States, we don't have women not actually going through with it. We have women hurting themselves and going to jail because they can't access that. And that's an entirely different moral and ethical question that must be dealt with at the same time. As okay. Uh, yeah, first of all, I'll address the end first before we get there. The idea that there are women going to jail for performing their own abortions on it. I don't know what she's talking And she does that, by the way, several times in the panel. She talking to a foreign audience can be a little freeing in the sense that you don't think people back home are going to hear what you have to say. Or maybe she just thinks that nobody cares. It's going to watch this video. Or maybe she just believes what she's saying. You see this, by the way, in the New York Times. I get to write articles for Christian Research Journal. It's one of my favorite things to do as part of my job. 
uh, in addition to the talking and the speaking and meeting people and all those other things, it's fun to write articles. And for a while there, I had a sort of a, a cottage industry at Christian Research Journal responding to the New York Times because they write a lot about abortion and they publish a lot of things about abortion that are not true remotely. They're deceptive. I mean, they're, they're flat out deceptive in how they, how they, how they word things. And, and, and they say that similar thing that we are already prosecuting women for illegal abortions in the United States. Here's the thing. If you ever look at the links that they, by the way, I talked to a group of, and for years taught groups of like seventh and eighth graders at homeschool as part of our homeschool collective. And when I would deal with them about current events, it's like, Always check the links. Always check the links. If you're reading an article and they claim, because most people don't. Most people see that a word is blue and they assume then if they clicked on the link that it would support what the person just said. But a lot of times it doesn't. A lot of times they claim things or even more weird, sometimes they click it as if they have a source for that information and they're leading you to a place where they said the same thing somewhere else still unsupported by any evidence. So they're like, look, you know, if you need a resource, check this link. It's me, <laughs> again, saying the same thing. That's not a resource. That's not a source material. That's just you saying it in multiple different places. So if you're looking for someplace, and I always say, always check the links. You'd be surprised how many of the links don't, don't go anywhere. That's what surprises me, is, is how many times they post hyperlinks in their articles to give the indication that they've given you sources for what they've just said. And then when I follow, and I follow every single one, it's the first thing I do when I'm asked to comment on an article is that the, I, I open up my computer, this lovely computer right here over here at the side of us, right here, Ooh, my little MacBook. And I open it up and I go to an article and I open every hyperlink. And then I open every hyperlink in the articles that have been hyperlinked. And I, and I end up having maybe 60 articles open that I read everything that everybody has sourced about this from both sides so that I can make sure that what everybody is saying lines up. And, and it's stunning, stunning how often people have weak support for the claims that they're making and they're just putting them in hyperlinks. Weak to no, the, I mean, both of this, weak to no support. So when they're saying that women are already being prosecuted, oftentimes when the New York Times makes that claim, women are already being prosecuted for, for miscarriage. Well, if you go and look, it's not like some woman had a miscarriage and then this invasive investigation into her life where they turned it upside down, getting into her personal life and all of that happened. What happened in many cases, you'll have somebody's done something weird. Uh, like a, you know, they, a woman shows up to the, the hospital to get post birth care because she's got bleeding going on and they, they'll say, well, where is the baby? Oh, it's in a dumpster on, you know, this Avenue over there. Oh, so now they're investigating. And now they're prosecuting. And these are the kind of thing, and it's not, that's not the only one. We have women who had miscarriages and then buried their child in the backyard and the police find out about it. And so they investigate it. And, and there's suspicious circumstances like they will have searched how to do home abortions on their phones and all of these, these, these details that are left out when it makes it sound like there's this crazy, invasive, privacy-defying group of government forces out there trying to, to punish women for having miscarriages or getting abortions at home. It's never, that's never the case. It's always something really strange has happened. Something that, that presses a community to figure out an appropriate response to it. More often than not, almost every time, every time I've ever followed up, that's been the case. It's been something odd. And the investigation is a bunch of people trying their best to figure out how do we proceed 
given the laws and what's happening and, and prosecute because we just prosecute these things. You shouldn't be able to have your kid and then bury them in your backyard. That's just not something we want to encourage happening or dump them in a dumpster and then show up to the hospital or any of the other things that have come up in some of these stories or get so uh, be so out of your mind on drugs and alcohol that you cause an accident where you cross the line and kill two people. And then your child that you're carrying late in pregnancy is born and then dies of those injuries later and you get prosecuted. Again, these are the kind of things that are being hyperlinked in these articles as evidence of women being prosecuted for having miscarriages or self-administered abortions. So I don't know what she's talking about. I haven't seen any evidence of it anywhere. If it's there, you know, it's, 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 I haven't seen it. But the claim that she makes there, I want to get back to the more important or more interesting claim there because I do think there's something there. She talks about starting that disconnect between my personal views and the law, which, which we hear, I hear a lot. And every speaker I know on this subject hears this a lot as well. You're standing in front of an audience, people will tell you. I'm personally pro-life, but I am politically pro-choice because I don't think I should be allowed to tell other people what they can and can't do, or there's reasons, reasons. And so I ask what the reasons are. We have a conversation about those reasons. So the disconnect there, but, but even more important, and, and well, let's stop there for one second and talk about that, I guess, because we've all had, I, I've known four or five speakers have had some version of the following conversation with somebody. I had it in an, um, talking to a guy at a church. I was there to visit the pastor. And he said, what are you here to talk about? And it was the landscaping guy. And I had time, so I stopped and chatted with him. I was in a suit. I think it was 100 degrees outside, but I tried to be a friendly guy. And so we're talking, and he says, you want to know what I think about this? Said, oh, please, tell me. What do you think about all of this? And he said, the line, I am personally pro-life. I am politically pro-choice. So I said, so why are you personally pro-life? What is it about abortion that you personally think is wrong? And he explains to me that it is the destruction of a human life. It's an innocent life being killed. It's killing a baby. Another guy I was talking to, a student in Indiana who chased me down the hall to talk to me about this and ask me questions about it. He said, why? Do you want to know what I think? And this is where I stand. And, and what's wrong with this? And I said, why are you? I said to that man, why are you personally pro-life? And they both said the same thing as anybody has said to me. Personally pro-life because I think it kills a human life. I think it destroys a human life. One of them even went so far as to say, I think that it unborn are babies and this kills babies. And so we asked the next question, then why are you politically pro-choice? Why would you identify yourself politically pro-choice? They, they'll say, both of them said something like this. I don't think I should be allowed to tell other people what they can and can't do. A lot about like what Elise Hoag is saying there. I don't know other people's circumstances. I don't know what's right for them. I don't want to interfere. So I believe it's wrong. Why do I believe it's wrong? Because it's killing a life. I don't think that I should be able to tell other people they can't get it because I don't want to tell other people what they are and aren't allowed to do. And so I learned this trick from Scott Klusendorf. There's two different ways I've dealt with it, but let's do Scott's way first because unfortunately in everything, I say it unfortunately because, you know, when you have somebody who's your mentor like that, it's sometimes not always easy to admit that they're right almost all the time. So, but Scott says, he asks him, so can I narrate this conversation back to you? And I've talked a bit about narrating conversation. It's a great way to make sure that we're all on the same page in a conversation. Can I say back to you what we've said so far? When I say we narrate a conversation, we go back to where the conversation started. I say in plain language as best I can what's been covered up to this point, trying to make sure that both sides are fairly represented. This also keeps me 
from having a straw man argument. I don't immediately jump in and start accusing people of believing things they don't believe. If I've misunderstood them, this gives them the opportunity to correct what I heard. And so Scott would say, can I narrate this conversation back to you? And in learning from Scott, I did the same thing. Can I narrate what you've said so far? And, and the young man I remember in Indiana said, yeah, sure, go ahead. And I said, you said that you're personally pro-life because you think abortion is wrong because it destroys an innocent human life. You just said you think that they are babies and that it kills babies. But you're politically pro-choice because you don't think you should be allowed to tell other people that they can't kill babies, that they can't destroy innocent human life. Is that where we are so far? I have had that conversation with dozens of people. And I will say that almost everyone that I've ever talked to about that listened to that narration back to me and said, yeah, that is what I said. And that doesn't sound right. It's some form of that sounds wrong when you say it that way. And, and, and that gentleman that was working on the yard pushed back and said, well, no, I don't, I don't know that that's what he said. What I'm just saying is that there's some things I don't think I should be allowed to tell other people that they can and can't do. I don't want to invade their privacy, private life. And then I asked him, I said, you know, I said, are you, do you have a mom? I assume. And he said, yeah. I said, is your mom alive? I said, yes, she is. And I said, so if somebody attacked your mother, brutally attacked your mother, would you have any problem with punishing them? for hurting your mom. And he said, no, of course not. I said, no, you would have no problem with there being laws that tell them they're not allowed to do that to your mom to stop them from doing it beforehand, correct? And he said, that's correct. So do you have any kids? And he said, yes, I have a daughter. And I said, okay, let's say somebody hurt your daughter. Would you have a problem with the laws punishing them for hurting your daughter? Would you have a problem with the laws restricting their behavior towards their daughter? He said, of course I would. I said, so you won't have a problem if the law is being so strongly in place and the idea of that punishment coming that they might restrict their behavior towards their daughter out of fear of what happened to them. You think it's perfectly reasonable not to tell an individual or, or to tell an individual they can't hurt your mom and they can't hurt your daughter. What's the difference between the unborn that you just told me you think are human beings, that you think are babies, that makes you personally pro-life, that you're okay with people hurting them, you have a problem telling people that they're not allowed to hurt them. You would never do that because that's intrusive, but you don't have a problem telling people that they can't hurt your mom or they can't hurt your daughter. What is the difference? Why are you having a trouble connecting those three things as being the same? And if there is a difference, then you don't believe they're babies. You don't believe they're human in the same way that I've argued for or the way you've expressed in this conversation. You see, they think... This is the kind of thing that, and that's where you get to what she says at the end, when Elise Hope talks about, you don't know their stories. You're right. I, I worked at a pregnancy center, a pregnancy resource center for three years. I'm on the board of directors of that same pregnancy resource. And I've spoken to pregnancy resource centers all over the country. Those people have the buildings that are set up for the members of the community that are facing crisis pregnancies to come in and share those stories to talk to them about what's going on in their life and to do their best to find some resolution that is more life-affirming for the thing they're struggling with or the thing that they're facing. But she says there that we don't know their stories as if the stories could excuse the level of behavior that we're talking about and the destruction of other human life. And only if you see the unborn as something less human than the other human beings that we talk to would that be an excuse. But this isn't a subjective thing where you can have a story... 
I have a story that's sufficient enough to explain why I was allowed to beat my neighbor to death. Okay, that better be a great story, right? I mean, if I start off that I, I beat my neighbor to death, your first reaction to that story is probably going to be, oh my gosh, why aren't you in jail right now? Why haven't you been arrested? There's a great story to explain why I beat my neighbor to death. There better be. Because as we've covered multiple times now in this podcast, once we get to the level of destroying human life, that better be a great story. That better be something truly extraordinary to explain why you were allowed to kill another human being. So she, there, But she's hitting on something, right? I do believe that she's right. That that's, That seems to be the way that the general public oftentimes processes this issue. Oh, I think it's wrong, but I don't think I should be allowed to tell other people because I don't know their stories. Well, we either disagree by what you mean by wrong, we disagree on what you think they are, or you're being inconsistent in how you apply what we're allowed to restrict through the law because you have no problem telling people they're not allowed to do all sorts of other things. As a matter of fact, we're very comfortable telling people that they're not allowed to do all sorts of other things. Some of them is trivial in comparison, right? You can't drive the wrong way on a run on a one-way street. I got no problem telling you that. That's a hard no, man. Hard no. You can't drive on the other side of the street on the freeway going the opposite direction. No, you can't go 100 miles in my neighborhood. No, you can't steal from other people. You should not be doing that. No, there's all sorts of areas where our community is entirely comfortable telling other people no. So if we are having trouble translating the wrongness of abortion into a no to the rest of society, it's because we either don't understand the nature of the wrong or we don't understand the nature of how we restrict behavior in our society. If the nature of the wrong is that it's the unjust destruction of innocent human life, with, then it's the kind of thing that we ought to restrict. And, and I had this conversation with, I remember a school the first time it happened, they, 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 they gave the school, all the students opportunity to talk to me. And they said, well, you've made, we made a moral case. I didn't make a legal case. So let's talk about different things, right? Let's talk about first three different things that we can do that are wrong. Lying. Lying is wrong. Does everybody in the room agree that lying is wrong? And all the students raise their hand. They all agree lying is wrong. Okay, we all, we have a place to start. Now, do you think lying should be illegal? I mean, we know it is in certain cases. It's illegal to lie to the police officers in the course of an investigation. It's illegal to lie in court. But let's say somebody said to you, did you see that movie last night? And for reasons that you can't possibly understand, you say, yeah, when you didn't. I have no idea why I'm lying about the movie that I saw, but I am. And we all lie about stupid things occasionally in our life. I mean, for some reason or another, at some point in your life, somebody has asked you a trivial question and you have told a stupid lie for no reason whatsoever. Did you see that TV show? Yeah. Did you go to that movie? Yeah. Did you go to the game? Yeah. I didn't do any of those things, but for some reason I told them I did, and I don't have any idea why. Mom asked, where were you last night? I was at Jeff's. I wasn't at Jeff's. I was at Cheryl's. I have no idea why I lied to my mom about that. So here's the question. Should that be illegal? I asked the audience, and the audience said, no, I don't think so. It shouldn't be illegal. We don't want the state interceding when I lie to my parents. Is it wrong? Yes. Is it understandable if my parents punish me as a result of it? Yes. But it should not be a matter of state intervention. 
Okay, but if I lie in court, that's a different thing. If I lie in the course of a criminal investigation, those are different things. I can get in trouble for those. But just in the general course of lying, there are times when it raises to the level that it needs to be restricted or it needs to be punished. But for the most part, it's just not the community's business. It's just not that big a deal. I asked a question about adultery. I loved my father. I loved my father. But he committed adultery. I said, should we do that? And the audience well, no, the law shouldn't be involved in adultery. I said, why? He said, well, there's no, it's not like the same as, as other things. It's not like victims or anything. Well, there was a victim. My mom was a victim. His second wife was a victim. I was a victim. My brother, my sisters were victims. We were all victims of the act of adultery. It was not pleasant. It was not an emotionally edifying thing. I didn't enjoy going through the dissolution of my family because of the things that my father did. We were victims. But it's not the kind of thing that the government should get involved with. And as somebody who has been hurt by that, I said, I agree with you, by the way. I have been hurt by this, but I did not want the state to arrest my father for being an adulterer. I didn't just think that was business of the state. So what about child abuse? We don't want to get the state involved in lying. We don't want to get the state involved in adultery. What about child abuse? Should the state be involved when the child is being abused? Everybody in every audience that I've ever asked that question to during Q&A or broader discussion said, yes, of course the state should be involved. Why? We didn't want them involved in lying and adultery. What's the difference here? And like, what's the victim is innocent and what's happening to them, right? I don't, there has to be some protection. There's nothing that they can do and there's, they're, 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 innocent victims of, of a physical abuse. Adultery may have been an emotional abuse, but your dad didn't beat you. Lying may be an abuse of trust, but it wasn't a violent act. When we get to child abuse, it's a violent act against another human being. There's a violent victim, a victim of a violent crime happening here. And they can't defend themselves. They can't stop it. That's what the, all of these audience people tell me. I said, okay, I get it, right? Now, the law needs to have something to say. Now it needs to be involved. What about rape? Everybody thinks because the same thing. A woman or a man, whoever was raped, had no choice. It was forced on them. They're a victim of violence. The law has to protect them. And the law has to punish those people who do those things. So then I get to the question, okay, if the moral case for abortion against abortion holds, if the unborn are human in the same way that you are, if they are one of us, and abortion is the unjust destruction of innocent human life, are they more like victims of lying or adultery, or are they more like victims of child abuse and rape? What category of victim did they fall into? Every audience I've ever talked to recognizes if they are one of us, they are more like the abused child. They are more like the victim of rape. Not completely analogous. They're not identical to them. They're not all enduring the same thing. But if they are one of us, then they belong in the kind of category where we are comfortable having laws that restrict other people's behavior in that manner. Victims of the violence of other human beings who cannot defend themselves. Violence. Not emotional damage, not a damage of trust, but physical, destructive violence against their person. If you believe that they are like us, 
then you should not be as uncomfortable about the law getting involved as most people seem to be because it's natural. And you expect that in every other area where you accept the humanity of the unborn. So maybe it's just that a large group of people in the United States don't fully accept the humanity of the unborn. That's a possibility as well. But there, there I think is interesting where we get to the last thing she said and the thing that I wanted to talk about the most, or at least cover before we move on. She says the three exceptions that struck me when she said that the three exceptions, life of the mother, rape, and me. Those are the three exceptions that abortionists say most people have when it comes to abortion. Abortionists say most people don't like abortion. And they think, though, that in the case of the life of the mother, they ought to get abortions. When it comes to rape, victims of rape, survivors of rape, they should be allowed to get abortions. And I should be allowed to get an abortion because my circumstances are different than everyone else. Now, I don't know. The, the language there gets a little funky, right? Because she says almost all of them say almost all the time, at least once, one of the protesters ends up needing or, or, or seeking abortion access. That's a, that's a weird way to form. I'm not sure how to sort through all of that. Almost all of them tell me almost all the time, at least one time, a protester comes. So I, I, I think we could probably table that without some evidence that that's going on at the level that she, the way she talks about it is almost as hard to parse through as uh, Bilbo Baggins toast at his 111st birthday when he's trying to talk about how well he knows everybody and how long he's known them and how good it, it's difficult to parse through when you read that and even hear it. What did he just say? And, and I, I've actually read academic articles and people and, and, and professional philosophers who have written down, Bilbo is actually complimenting everybody. It sounds like a shot at them, but he's actually complimenting. That is almost as convoluted as Bilbo's toast as you're trying to sort through what evidence she actually has that protesters are sneaking around the back door to get abortions frequently. Um, I don't think her language even gives you cause to believe that. But I do think that it does touch on something that... It seems to have been all along that the polling indicates consistently through history of the United States, especially modern history, that most people are uncomfortable with abortion and simultaneously uncomfortable with laws restricting abortion. And an aspect of that, where for those of us who think abortion is a great moral wrong and are trying to convince other people, an underappreciated aspect of that that we have to always keep in mind is something that Robert George, professor at Princeton University, said they just want their abortions. At the end of the day, they just want them for them. They may not want society to have them. They may not want their neighbor to have them. They may not want their friend at church to perform them. But when it comes to them and theirs, they want them. They don't want it to go away because they may need them in the future. At the end of the day, we can win the intellectual arguments. We can win the political arguments. And we're going to face... The fact that oftentimes in our society, the reasons that elections aren't going the way we want them to, or we might see polling results that we're not happy with, or we're confused because they've said all along they don't like it and they were on our side, and suddenly now they have the ability to restrict abortion and they say, whoa, pump the brakes there, buddy. We're not ready to get rid of abortion quite yet. Because of those three exceptions, I think is something worth considering. The life of the mother, rape, and me and mine. If we need it, we want it. I don't like it. I think it destroys a life, but I also don't want it to go away. 
And that, that answers questions for us, I think, oftentimes. It's an element, at least might a piece of the puzzle for many people that I know that I've talked to that are, that are incredibly disappointed with how some of the things have gone since Roe v. Wade was overturned. You cannot underestimate how much people may turn around one day and come back to that. Just that. I need it. I need it there. I need it for me. I need it for mine. I need it for the people around me just in case I'm just not ready to let go of it yet. And I don't know if it goes to narcissism. By the way, I have a book about narcissism. I'm talking about psychologists about coming on to talk to me about it a little bit as well as sort of a sidetrack because I do think narcissism plays into a lot of the things that are going on in society today. This book was written by clinical psychologists that had done decades of research on the growth of narcissism in our country. And so there is an element of of how we process things where we uh, have removed like for the Christian God from the center of your life and you've become the center of your life and all you see are your goals, your ambitions, your world, what you want. And anything that comes or introduced into that, that throws that path off is suddenly throwing you off of the, the, the will, the idea that you had for yourself, this manifest destiny that you're pursuing where you are going to become this great person. At the end of the day, at that point that we want to pursue our life without being encumbered, I think that I think she hits on something important. I, th- I think that that's worth considering. How do we combat that? How do we make people value life? The law can restrict their behavior, but in order to truly restrict abortion, we're also going to have to build a society that values human life. Both of those elements come into play, right? I, I don't want to abandon the idea that the law pursuit's important. Both elements come into play. But we can't lose sight of the fact that the reason that things don't always go our way in the polling is just because they're not with us as much as we think they are. They're kind of with us. They're kind of on board, but they're not totally with us. Now, we're about to go to Leah Savas now to talk about the history, the story of abortion in America, where we're going to go back and discuss all the way through. And she's going to give us the three things as she wrote this book with Marvin Alasky that she thinks are most important in that evaluation. And I think it dovetails really nicely with this discussion because what you see when you read this book and I encourage anybody to read the story of abortion in America, what you'll find out is that this is a lot more complicated as far as winning people over into the idea of not getting abortions on a large scale, getting the most number of people to have the least number of abortions possible that we thought, uh, and that we're going to have to attend to different things. And we have to recognize when we look at history, which is a wisdom at practice, look at history to determine what we can reasonably expect to happen in the future, uh, that Ross Douthat for the New York Times was right when he wrote his article recently, and I'll, I'll, I'll actually probably link this under the YouTube channel, where he talked about at one point of it, we have to recognize that some of the things that we want to exist as pro-lifers have never existed. And then there is a level to what we're looking at, and he uses the term utopian thinking, but we're looking for an ideal world, pursuing an ideal world, pursuing perfections. And, and you know, maybe we have to balance out the, the desire to see the greatness of God manifest itself in the world around us through this vision that all human beings are seen as the image bearers of God and treated with the dignity and respect that they ought to be treated with go to Thomas Sowell's statements about conservatism, understanding there's always going to be trade-offs and that we have to get the best that we can through politics and the law without becoming caught up in the idea that we will ever get this utopia as Ross Douthat talks about. Okay, let's move on to our guest. 
I cannot tell you how excited I am about our guest today, Leah Savis, who writes uh, with World News Group on the issue of abortion. If you go online, just journalistic writing, I really appreciate journalistic writing. I went to journalism school when I was at university, and there is a different style of writing when you're talking about a journalistic writing. And the book that we're going to be talking about today, uh, a day today, the, the story of abortion in America right here, she co-wrote with Marvin Olasky. The whole book is written in a very snappy journalistic style, which I really enjoyed. Uh, we've been having uh, uh, an effort to get her on because I've been excited about this since the moment that book came through Amazon. Immediately, one of the first things I did when starting this new series of podcasts was contact her to try to get her on. Leah Savas, welcome to the Human Things Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, no, the pleasure is all ours. Now, you are now you are welcomed into a segment that we call the three things. Uh, so what it is, is that you get the opportunity to dictate this conversation, tell the audience the three things that are most important, or that you're mo- is whatever you want to communicate. It's all about you. And I'm going <laughs> to talk back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interact with you. But, but I'm interested in bringing guests on that have some level of expertise or information that, that I don't have, the audience doesn't have, and they can bring a different perspective to things. I, I, I do love, by the way, your writing. I have spent in preparation for Thanks. this reading your writing online. I'm a huge fan already. Um, I'm, so that's another exciting part as well, because I have a new resource <laughs> to go and to read these sorts of things. So let's turn it over to you. You're, you are now running three things. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, I was thinking about this earlier. What three things did I want to mention? Um, the first one that comes to my mind is just um, what shocked me about reading some of this research in this book. And 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 Mar- my co-author, Marvin Olasky, he's a historian. He did a lot of the um, stuff that's farther back in time in America. So um, reading some of his research, I was so surprised to learn that doctors as early as the 1830s said that life begins at conception. I was so shocked that, you know, that, that I did not expect that. Um, And reading what they had to say about just this, how specific they were about, no, like we believe that we are treating a second patient when we, when a pregnant woman comes to us. And that's from, um, I think it was 1839 was when this Dr. Hugh Hodge gave a lecture asserting those things. And that blew me out of the water. So that was one thing that really I, I wanted to talk about for sure. So, yeah, and we and yeah. working in my side of things is more has been historically over the last 10 years, more the apologetic side of things. And so those arguments and it is it is interesting when I first became aware of that was actually through the works of people like Marvin Alasky and Joseph Delapina and Dispelling the Myths of Abortion History. So I'm a Clark Forsyth. When you read some of those things and you find out the, the level of argument about abortion that was being had in the early mid 19th century and through all the way up into the early 20th century, it is surprising, right? I mean, these yeah. people weren't just, it wasn't a religious argument. These were doctors saying and, and they believed, and this was, I think this is one of the more depressing, I want to, I want to go back and talk a little bit about what your book is, uh, because I mentioned it on the last episode, actually, I talked about your book last week as well. It's, when we say street level look at the issue of abortion, you guys have, have gathered primary resources, sermons, letters, uh, newspaper articles, anything that where the past communicates for itself what people were talking about and how they were talking about during those times. And then you've collected them in a work that goes 
from common law all the way through to people that I work with today, actually. And that was fun to see them in the later chapters. Uh, and so you, in this, when you're talking, we go back in the mid 19th century, the level of sophistication these doctors were operating at is surprising. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And even some of the doctors who supported abortion, they still understood that it, it was a human being, a live person that was being killed in abortion. They just saw it as, oh, well, you know, it's better for the woman. So it's kind of similar to the arguments we see today. But I think the thing that really got to me was, I mean, we've heard all these years, especially since Roe v. Wade, that there's no consensus about when life begins. And that's an argument that we hear today. But as we say in the book, well, maybe there wasn't a consensus among historians or maybe among uh, like legal scholars, but there was a consensus among doctors. And I think yeah. that's the group we should be paying the most attention to anyway when it comes to this question, because they're they're in the science, they they see the anatomy of the unborn child, and they've seen it longer than maybe the everyday person has just because um, you know, ultrasound technology has only been around for a few decades. So yeah, just recognizing the level of knowledge that they had on this um, was very surprising. And I think also something that I think would be good for a lot of people to know, even if you agree that abortion is okay, you should at least know that there is a, a general understanding among physicians, even physicians in the 1800s, that life begins at conception. So and I think that most was, people yeah. Most people don't think, I guess, because we're so captive by our period that we live in, right? I think most people don't realize the massive transformation that the medical industry went through during yeah. the 19th century, right? It really was moving away from a type of medicine that would be completely foreign to us today and the birth of modern medicine, modern medical mm -hmm. scientific practices. And that happens during that period. So even... That's what I think is even more interesting, because when we say doctors in the 1830s and moving forward after that, we're well aware of when life began and we're starting to chart that, that the development of life early on and understand mm -hmm. the process of growing life. We are saying the moment medical science really enters the picture, the understanding of when life begins changes, right? It was informed by philosophy before and a different way of understanding. And that's why you had, like, you know, let's go back to the death of George Washington, right? I mean, why does he die? It's not because he gets sick. It's because probably because when he got sick, sick we bled him because he had too much blood. That was, that was like the, you have too much blood. That's why you're flush and hot. We've got to get that oh, blood man. out of you. Uh, and that was that yeah. was science before. So as as yeah. new science comes in, you see a change. Another thing, building on what you just said, that I want to hear your if you have a comment on, because you said even the doctors who thought abortion was okay knew they were destroying a life. What's interesting in your when the book here is that you highlight the idea that it was worldview differences that made them have a different view of abortion. It, it wasn't that they didn't understand what life was. It's, they just had a different understanding of what made life important, what made life valuable, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and that actually leads into one of the other, my second thing that I wanted to touch on, my second of three things, um, was just the how, how the issue of abortion and someone's view on abortion is so closely tied to what they believe about God and what they yeah. believe about the scriptures. So we see in like the early 
in the very earliest cases of abortion in America, so in the early chapters of the book, um, when uh, the first few cases that we we talk about in the book are of men forcing abortifacient like herbs on women who they impregnated and you know they don't want them to have a baby so they force these drugs on these women and they have abortions and the way their community responds is very informed not by the science because they didn't really know much about the science but rather by what scripture has to say about yeah. abortion so they you know like the this one woman, Susan Warren, who was one of those victims of a forced abortion, she um, later said that, you know, it was a great sin for me to get pregnant outside of wedlock, but it's an even greater sin for, you know, this abortion to happen, this child to die. Um, so she recognized it as a sin. The community recognized it as a sin. And that's why they put um, Captain Mitchell, who was the man that forced the abortion on her, on trial for murder. You know this so okay you know this is mm. this is a long time before this science that we see today you know the yes. ultrasound technology it's even um long before you know i mentioned dr hugh hodge and he was in the 1830s giving these lectures on abortion and how the unborn child is an individual a second patient so this is long before even that but they yeah. still recognized it as murder and that's because they had this understanding of what the Bible had to say and how scripture treats unborn life and just the issue of um, life in general. So, yeah, that was another thing I, I that I thought was really important was the whole worldview aspect and um, just a view of scripture, a view of God and how that informs your approach. So later in the 1850s, we we see this spiritism movement yes. coming to the forefront. And with that, we also see just overt support for abortion because yep. they they don't accept scripture as a standard for truth. They they don't care what God has to say. So their their standard is, you know, what you believe, what you feel, what you think is best for yourself, which is what we hear today. And, you know, this is in the 1850s. We have these yeah. people um, supporting abortion for a very worldview reason, even as doctors are talking about um, individuals who are unborn, you know, as being yep. a second patient when they see a pregnant woman. So, yeah, no, exactly what you were saying. It's very much of a worldview issue. Not to say that someone who's atheist can't also be you know, against abortion, because we definitely see that. But yeah. as when you look at a culture as a whole, you can see how these views of scripture um, very much inform how we approach issue, issues like that, which is why today, you know, we see a very unchurched culture, uh, a culture that's not interested in what scripture has to say, and a lot of support for abortion, um, you know, people shouting their abortions. And I think, you know, it kind of goes hand to ha hand in hand. And you can kind of see that trace throughout the book, how, you know, we, yeah. we might have an increased understanding of the science, but we're getting a decreased understanding of what scripture has to say. And yeah, so it, yeah, it's just very interesting kind of what and, you were and talking And responsibilities about. and duties to each other, right? I mean, I think it was when I first yeah. read Abortion Rights, Marvin Lasky's prior book, uh, yeah. It was the first time I became aware, and he mentions it again in this book, but you guys cover it in this book, the idea of shotgun weddings, as we understood them from our perspective, were a different thing back then. And, sure. and that there was, a, there was a sense of if we, I remember he talk, him talking about originally saying, 
there was a sense for women in which this was just a way to advance the relationship, right? I mean, in these smaller communities, and that's something that I always, again, when we try to understand the past through today, we always have these biases by which we're trying to understand the things that we're evaluating. And, and go, let's go to something different for a second. Let's take a rabbit trail because we can do that. We're allowed okay. to, right? All right. So um, talking about Christmas, right? Over Christmas, I wrote a brief article and put it on the website about understanding the size of Bethlehem, right? You know, my go to church, Johnson Ferry Baptist Church, I think our our, our sanctuary holds like over a little over 2,000 people. It's like, well, the, the whole town of Bethlehem was less than half that size or somewhere around half that size mm. as far as the population. Mm. This was a okay. small small community. And when you go back to these communities prior to the rise of the, the urbanization of, of the United States and the growth of these big cities, when you're talking about short, what we would call shotgun weddings back then, what you're talking about are these very small communities, no secrets. Yeah. And, and oh, then, totally. And so it, the, the idea of how, like you talked about, how the community interacted with an unplanned pregnancy was different because yeah. there was no way to hide it. There, there was no mm -hmm. way to hide what had happened. It was coming out. And so there was a sense by which when he wrote about it originally, I thought it was fascinating. Sometimes this was just the way relationships progressed, right? You, mm -hmm. you want to have sex? All right, when we're going to get married. That's the next thing that happens. Mm -hmm. And if you got pregnant, it was going to have to happen because the community would put pressure on men to do what was right in that situation. You now have responsibility yeah. duties and requirements to this community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's actually um, an interesting, uh, I, I can't remember if it was a law or more of a, um, I think it, yeah, I think it was a law. Um, but in, in these early communities, there's this one, um, oath, um, or just kind of standard by which midwives would approach these cases yeah. of women who are pregnant outside of marriage. And basically the, the procedure was, you know, if the, if they didn't know who the dad was, then they would ask the woman as she was going through labor, giving yes. birth, who's the dad and whoever she named in that moment, was considered the father legally. Yeah. Um, and and I, that, I, that was I think that, yeah, yeah, it's so interesting. And I think that just speaks to those, what you were saying about the small communities. Um, obviously, everyone knew each other. If you know, if, if you well, yeah. can just name someone and, yeah, and just and say, the idea oh, that yeah, labor was like a, was like a truth serum. That's what cracks me <laughs> yeah. up. It's like, because you can't ask her before that because she might try to protect them. But at that yeah, moment yeah. when, and, and my wife, you know, we have three children and our first child, we went through, I think, I don't know if I mentioned, like Bradley courses, which is like natural birth on steroids. It's like these super serious natural birth people, right? And, and so you have to study all of these things and you learn about the psychological state that a woman goes through during labor. So that cracked me up when I was reading that because it is, it's a traumatic thing that's happening to her at that moment. Yeah. I, and, mm -hmm. and, and she's going through labor and all the hormones are raging. Her body is going through all of these, th these different. And so at that moment to wait till she's in the, the, the grasp of all that to say, no, who's the dad? <laughs> like, you know, tell mm -hmm. us because there's a sense mm -hmm. like there will be honesty at that moment. We're just, we're, yeah. We're, isn't that funny? Yeah. But I did. <laughs> yeah. I loved that part. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just shows that they had these um, kind of ways in these communities in early America to make sure that no child went yeah. without, you know, support and no child was and no no mother even went without support when she was pregnant outside of marriage, had no husband. So yeah. they they didn't see abortion as the go to solution. They saw they found these other other ways to help 
in these situations. But I mean, obviously, since they had those smaller communities, in some ways, it was easier to do that. Now, now with just, you know, people being so spread out. And like, for instance, I don't know a lot of my neighbors, you know, and there are people that live right on my street. So it's, I think just that situation today, I mean, we're obviously in a different reality than these early Americans were, but because they had those tight, tight knit communities, they just had these solutions that made, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, they were intentional about that too. So I think, I think as we see these spread, um, the spread throughout this book into, you know, people going into big cities and like women being on their own, um, young men being on their own, finding out, you know, just people not having support around them. We do see the rise of these groups, these Christians often starting these organizations to try to help women in difficult situations, trying to encourage men um, to make wise decisions too. So, and I think that's a pattern that we still see today with like crisis pregnancy centers and other organizations like maternity homes that are there to kind of be that community, that that tight-knit community for those people that are kind of lost in maybe a big city or even a small town, but maybe don't know anyone. So, yeah, so that's definitely a pattern that's continued as well. Um, Just how we have that desire as believers to form these communities to offer support. Um, and I, I think that's um, that's really exciting to see that we have a long history of that in our country too. And I, so. yeah, I agree. And as a Christian, I wasn't, you know, I, I, we don't know each other, but when I was in my early twenties, I was not a Christian and I had a view of what Christianity was. And then since then I've spent a lot of time reading, you know, when you do this for a living and you write about this for a living as well, it, it, it can be a little dark, right? I mean, we're not talking yeah. about the happiest subject on earth. I'm not, I'm not no. spending a lot of time talking about the things that make people happy. And, and so you, you balance it out, right? The, like for the darkness of the way people are capable of behaving. And I will, I will own up to this. I love, by the way, I'll say, I love the book. I, I wanted to write this book like seven years ago, but then I didn't. <laughs> and I'm glad I didn't because y'all's version is better than anything I would have done. Oh, um, thanks. But, and I think there's so much value. A friend of mine and I were talking, a a, a faculty member out of the college out in California and I were talking years ago when I was talking about writing a book like this. And he said, it's a wisdom book. He talked about it. He's like, when when you write this kind of work, right? We do argument and then there's wisdom and history gives us wisdom. And so there's wisdom and understanding the human condition when you read about it. But I will own up to it. There are chapters when I'm reading about things that you guys are reporting in this history that you're sharing mm-hmm. that are hard to read uh, because yeah. it, it mm-hmm. darkness is raining and, and it, there's no way to, it feels like we can't get a grasp on it. Uh, but in every place you see this response, as you said, of Christian community rising up and trying their best to find some way to combat the evil in a community in Christ-like way. And you see it reflect mm-hmm. originally it was done I, you know, in communities, right? I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I'm a hardcore guy community first in the sense that we should have the, the, uh, the principle of subsidiarity. You know, I, I think that the smallest, most local institutions are always the best to solve problems and that we should only extend sure. beyond them when we, when, when, when it's necessary. And sometimes it is necessary. And there are things that you need larger, more, more universal systems to help and build. But then there's things that the answer should be your neighbor and, and, and your church mm-hmm. and those people and so, and, and one of the things I loved about what Marvin Lasky wrote in, in his other book and then was recovered in this is that there was no 
stigma for the child or the mom. If the man failed to live up to his responsibilities, the stigma was on him. But then you mm -hmm. talk about a second ago, we move into the urbanization of America and we go into cities. It's not just the idea that you no longer have that kind of community anymore. There's also an element that you can hide your sin in a way that yeah. you couldn't before. You can hide yeah. your infidelity in a way that you couldn't before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. And it's interesting too, to see even as, um, as these abortion uh, doctors or abortionists pop up in these big cities, how they use power and money to try to hide what they're doing as well. So, yeah. you know, it's not just for the people who, you know, maybe got pregnant outside of marriage, but also for, um, for people like Madame Ristel, we write about her in the book. She was a big abortionist in New York City in the 1800s. And, you know, abortion was not legal, but she was doing it. Everyone knew that she was doing it. But as far as like enforcement of the laws, she was able to basically hide from the law by paying people off. Um, you know, she knew enough of the secrets of the city, of people in, in these communities to be like, hey, you know, so I know this secret about you. I know about, you know, X, Y, Z. And you remember when you came yeah. to my place? Well, I wouldn't want that to get out into the public. So you better pay me some money, you know, so just kind of using those secrets for power, for gaining yeah. money. What was yeah. the name of the abortionist in San Francisco as well? That became Inez so Burns. There, there, that's right. Inez Burns. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yep. yeah, you have these, yes. these figures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there, I think uh, Ruth Barnett, I believe was her name, was another abortionist who, um, she, she, her daughter was trying to join this sorority and they wouldn't <laughs> let her because her mom was an abortionist and, and Ruth Barnett was like, well, honey, you know, they're not going to let you join, but I'm going to buy you a dress every time I abort a baby of one of these sorority sisters. And, oh. and her daughter is basically like, I was the most, um, well-dressed woman on campus you know so yeah. even even that element of like seeing how rich and powerful these abortionists would get off of the death of unborn children amazing um, wasn't it yeah yeah crazy crazy they had an and industry. i industry yeah mm -hmm. and and also seeing their lifestyles too yeah. um there are some stories we have of you know the small town abortionist who was seen as kind of like a public servant you know, and I'm sure that these bigger abortionists like Madame Ristel and Inez Burns and Ruth Barnett, you know, I'm sure that it, I'm sure you if you saw abortion as a good thing, you could also see, oh, yeah, they're a public servant. But there's this image that they had of being like these people with the, the big furs and all the jewelry, you know, driving yeah. around town with with the nicest, you know, carriages and the nicest horses and i think inez burns i get them all kind of mixed up in my mind but i think it was inez burns was the one who um actually had her little toes surgically removed so that she could wear high heels yes. more comfortably you know so like just yes. little details about that you know about their their personalities and you can kind of see like wow that what freaked it me out when i yeah. read that yeah because well, like, i've never wow, worn high heels but that's a commitment <laughs> to high heels, man. I'm going to have my totally. pinky toes removed. Uh, yeah. Maybe she just had well, wide it, feet. I don't know about that. That's I don't, crazy. I don't know. I don't I will know. Say, but yeah. Even, 
Even though when you mentioned, because y'all, and, I, and I, I wish I had, had done a better job at memorizing names, but you talked about the small town. I know who you're talking about in a couple of them, the, the, the smaller town abortionists. I mean, these are still people yeah. that performed tens of thousands of abortions during the course of their lifetime. Mm-hmm. And the act of protecting them was actually driven much more by the finances of the town. Because you, you're, you're still not seeing a town that said, we're good with abortion. What you're seeing is a town that said, we like the abortion tourism that we're getting. The dollars mm-hmm. that are flowing in from people that visit this guy. Because he's a great guy. He's been in our community. He's taking care of us. But he didn't do... 50,000 abortions over his lifetime in our small town. What happened was Mm -hmm. all these people were coming in from other places. And so he was enjoying protection, not because everybody loved what he was doing, although they liked him based on the way way y'all wrote about him, but because the Mm -hmm. town profited from this. So there's still that element Mm -hmm. of profit, right? It's, it's, I, I kept looking, and I mentioned this on the last podcast, when I was reading your book, I kept looking for an abortionist that I felt okay about beyond the idea of what they were doing. And in every oh, one of them, there was just something in there that just undercut it, right? There was always something that is there because yeah. it's, it's a hard thing to do that mm-hmm. for a living. You, you mm-hmm. when you do that for a living, you, you know, abortion differently than every other person. I mean, you just have mm-hmm. a, a, an experience with it than that all the rest of us will never have. And, and I've, I've mm-hmm. long held that from my experience of talking to them, that there's, they're morally strange people when I have conversations with them. Uh, there's, there's... Yeah, what well, I'm sorry, but it goes no, back right, to yeah, that no. anatomy issue, like the 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 whole science behind it. Because if you know, they're the ones that know the yeah. most about that unborn child from a scientific perspective or an anatomical perspective. So you know, if they know this and yet they're still performing the abortion, like you were saying earlier, it has to do with that worldview disconnect. You know, yeah. they they might know the science, but they there's something that in their worldview that says that this is a good thing and maybe i mean for a lot of them maybe it really is like oh i think you know i'm doing what is best for these women which obviously they're not fearing the lord they're fearing something else more than god in his scripture um but also there you know like you mentioned the money aspect that is a a big part of the abortion industry someone's making money off of these deaths of these unborn children and we can't discount that being a legit kind of motivator for, you know, people who perform the abortions. Yeah. So, and yeah, always have, sure. that's the thing that's fascinating is always have been making money that these are people profiting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So do, do, we got two, what was your third? Oh yeah. Well, so, and it kind of actually goes with what you were just saying. My third thing was, um, just, so, okay, when people were, you know, when I was first telling people, oh, I'm, you know, helping write this book about the history of abortion in America, I think their minds all automatically went to, you know, 1973, because that's yeah. Roe v. Wade. 50 years um, ago. Yeah, but then when I would say, and actually it starts in 1652, people are like, what? You know, 1652? Like, what was going on in 1652? And, and actually, there. There's a light abortion even early, earlier than that, but it's just not confirmed in the records from the 1620s. So just telling people about, you know, how abortion has been a- around in the country, you know, so much longer than you would assume way before Roe v. Wade. I think that was another big thing. Um, and I think a lot of abortion advocates will say, 
oh yeah, abortion's been around as long as women could get pregnant. And I think to some extent, yeah, that's true. I mean, Eve didn't get pregnant until after the fall. (laughs) So, um, I mean, obviously she didn't abort Cain and Abel, as far as we know, we didn't, she didn't abort any children, but, um, but still, you know, sin's been around as long as women were getting pregnant and sin, sin is, really the the root behind abortion you know it's ultimately a heart issue ultimately a sin issue it's ultimately uh an issue of like murder so um so yeah they're right abortion has been around this long but it also is a reminder that you know we can't we can't just assume that because roe v wade has been overturned that the abortion issue is over in the country like it's been around long before roe v wade and it's going to continue um, abortion yep. is going to continue as long as there is sin. Um, so that's why I think we need to be combating this issue from a spiritual level, you know, um, using the gospel to confront people about, you know, the reality of sin and the reality of the grace and forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ. Um, it's great when we can talk about the science, but ultimately that is not going to change someone's mind or heart that maybe it will change their mind, but it will not change their heart. What will change their heart is the gospel. And we need to make sure we're applying the gospel and scripture to this issue, not avoiding it. So I think that was, that was another big thing that really stood out to me. Yeah. And before you came on and in another section I recorded for this podcast, I was discussing a, an interview. This was from, I think 2018, it's Oxford union panel discussing abortion. Uh, and one of the panelists talks about abortionists saying there's for most people as American abortionists that they say that they've heard that there are three exceptions for abortion that almost everybody has. It was life of the mother, rape and me. And, and I think what you're saying there is interesting about that because I, I, I fight on both fronts, obviously. I mean, for me, that there is an element to where we have to disarm the arguments that are justifying things. And the only way sure. to, to take those on is through science and philosophy, more intellectually rigorous pursuits like that. But at the end of the mm-hmm. day, what you find is I can strip away. And I, I warned a friend of mine about this years ago. And, and, and um, like I, I've heard just that they love abortion. They want it for mm-hmm. them. They, they mm-hmm. On some part of their life, they'll say, I think it's bad. And I don't think everybody else should get it. And I think it's probably wrong. And I know it's a life that's being destroyed. You could hear this, but at the end of the day, I think why you see the the elections run the way they do and the polls run the way they do often is because people want to reserve it for them or or for Mm -hmm. theirs, for their people. So I think you're right in the sense that, uh, and Robert George says that a lot. He says they love, they, they love abortion. They love their abortions. They want their abortions. That's what they want. They want to be able to get their abortions. And if you don't understand that, you're going to have a hard time understanding the world that you live in because you, and those early doctors Mm -hmm. we talked about, that you guys wrote about, you say in the book, y'all write that they believed if they could just help people to understand the development process that was going on, that people would not get abortions. And the end of result was they were wrong. Even Mm -hmm. when people understood exactly what was going on, they go back to Robert George. They still want their abortions. And a friend of mine came to me after I talked to him about that. And he said, I was having a discussion with somebody and it was an intellectual discussion and I was using all the tools that we've talked about over the years to disarm the arguments that they're using. And he would never ever admit that he was wrong, that abortion should be restricted. And so finally I said, do you just want abortion? 
is that it? You just want abortion to be there in case you need it. And he said, the guy looked at him and yeah. honestly said, yeah, that's it. And so there is an element to what you're saying that at the end of the day, we're going to have to win people over, not just restrict. Now the restrictions important, like the legal restrictions is an important part of it. We also have to win them over to the truth, to yeah. morality, to, to seeing a world where they're not the center of it, to abandon a narcissistic mm-hmm. worldview and embrace something where there's some sacrificial nature, duties and responsibilities, obligations to other human beings that require them to limit their own pursuits in order to make room for others to flourish. And, and that's just not going to happen, yeah. I don't think, without God, personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, even Captain Mitchell, the man that forced Susan Warren to take an abortive patient on a poached egg in 1652, um, yeah. he was seen in the community as a blasphemer. Like he said publicly that he doesn't think that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are real. He just sees them as a man and a pigeon. Like that's on the record. Like his, we know what his view was of, of God. And it was linked to how he was treating this woman and how he was treating that unborn child of his. Um, it's, it's a closely linked um, issue and just question that, you know, every human heart has to deal with, like, what do you say, what do you think about what scripture has to say? And how is that affecting the decisions you make and the things that you support like abortion? So yeah, ultimately it is a hard issue and, and something that we need to apply the gospel to. But I think another thing, just from my reporting and talking with women who have had abortions, one of the things that I think makes the gospel issue so important for abortion is that it offers a solution to women who are struggling with that regret. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, some, there's one woman I talked to, this isn't in the book, but I write about this in another article that I I think has been a couple years by now. Um, But I got this interview with this woman who's, she's like a grandma, Um, grandma age. I can't remember her exact age, but she had grandchildren Um, And she had only recently told her husband that she had had an abortion. Um, She had not told anyone for decades that she had had this abortion. She had been in Bible study. She became a Christian. I think the way she told it was before she became a Christian, she didn't really have any problem with her decision to get an abortion. But then once she learned what scripture has to say, she just felt this immense weight and guilt. And she went through Bible studies for years and years and never yeah. realized until going through this, um, it was like a post-abortive Bible study, never realized until that post-abortive Bible study as a grandmother that Christ's sacrifice on the cross paid for the sin of the abortion, just yeah. like any other sin. She thought it was like its own category of thing. You know, she she yeah. didn't think that, Christ's sacrifice had paid for that as well. So once she realized how the gospel applied to her specific experience, um, she just found so much freedom. She told her family members about it. She told her granddaughter about it. She told me, like, you know, a total stranger for an article about it. So just seeing the freedom that she found in Christ um, when she was able to recognize how Christ um, saved her, you know, from the sin of her abortion and the punishment that comes for sin, so much freedom. And it's just really encouraging to hear stories like that. But I'm sure that there are a lot of women in a, in a similar boat to where she was who just don't see that connection because they're not used to talking about abortion as a sin. So I th- yep. yeah, I think, yeah. And my friend Scott Klusendorf, who will be coming on in a couple of weeks, uh, he, 
he and I were, he's, he's one that I think most succinctly said it when he said, the failure of the church to address abortion is not failing to communicate to the people in the pews that abortion is wrong or that the church believes that abortion is wrong or the church condemns abortion. The failure to talk about it is blocking people from coming up the aisle to receive grace for their past abortions, right? They're, they're getting the message that they've done something wrong, clearly. What they're not getting is that the, the, that is forgivable and that Christ yeah. died and rose again to save us from all sins, including that one. Uh, and, and so mm-hmm. by not talking about it, we're leaving people in prison to their past in the pews, as opposed to being open and free and discussing it and, and, and saying that even as bad as this is, and we condemn it, it is yet mm-hmm. another thing that you can be forgiven for if you just come and lay yeah. it down. And, and that mm-hmm. is a powerful thing that, to be able to, to know that the altar is open to you and that there is, there is nothing that you've done that he can't restore you. Right. Exactly. Uh, and so, mm-hmm. Now I will say this, yeah. um, and, and going back to where you're saying that about, uh, you know, for us, that worldview grounding it in there, obviously we both know and have talked to and worked with atheists who, who, who land on the idea that they have a high value of life and they just don't like the destruction mm-hmm. of life. I, I've, I've talked to them before and I said, we just have, we're going to have to ground those in different places. I don't think you have great reasons, but, but you do have a high value of human life as a great thing. Yeah. And I work alongside you because of that. But I wanted to ask you something before we go. Something since you've given us the three things. Okay. I want what what was the the most hopeful thing the process of writing this book left? I already said, you know, for, for me, this work has a, a side that's aware that's taxing and wearing that requires me to spiritually and prayerfully look after my own virtue. But what was the most hopeful aspect of it for you in writing this book? Hmm, most hopeful aspect. Oh man. I mean, in some ways that's hard because it is a really sad topic. Like some of the interviews that I did in, um, in working on the book, like made me cry during the interviews, Mm. you know, just like in tears. I think I was crying more than the woman I was interviewing, but she, this one woman that I, um, write about in one of the later chapters, she had an abortion herself. Um, and I guess, so I guess, yeah, her story is a good example of what I find to be the most hopeful, but she was saying how she just, she also struggled with the weight of this abortion that she had had years ago. And even when she had children later, she just felt like, you know, I have this little baby that's, you know, a born baby. And she just kept having this feeling like you're going to go kill that baby too. Cause you killed your first baby. I remember that. You know? Yeah. And like hearing that, I was like, oh my goodness, like that is so sad. I can't, like, I can't imagine living with that. Um, that overwhelming but, dread that she felt like but that she was yeah. going to kill another one of her children, like intentionally yeah, exactly. directly kill her children. Yeah. Like she was afraid to chop vegetables, you know, when her husband wasn't home because she, this would just come to her mind. Not like she wanted to kill her yeah, child, yeah. but she knew what she had done and she knew that she was capable of killing a, her, a child of hers. Um, mm. but she said that, you know, just going through and, and learning about Christ and, and the gospel, that was a big source of freedom for her from kind of those, those feelings and those fears. So ultimately I know I, I was just talking about that, but I think that was probably the main source of hope for me in, in working on these chapters and working on this book was just recognizing 
the gospel and how it applies to the situation. That's ultimately where the hope comes. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. No, you we really, that, yeah. we, <laughs> we don't have any of other source of hope. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that is, I, and that's one of the things when you're on the road or like when I go on the road and I'll spend, I remember one time I spent a long time on the road and I came home and I went to church and I love my church. I don't want this to sound insulting, but whatever we were talking about that day after spending weeks and weeks on the road, arguing with people who are trying to explain why it was okay to destroy other human life. Like they, they line up when I get done to go to Q and a to find, is this a reason we can kill? Is this a reason we can kill? Is this a reason we can kill? And so you're just constantly talking about these urgent, important issues. And, and you're seeing mm-hmm. the, the level of spiritual battle that's necessary in our culture to reclaim a yeah. life, a life affirming world. And then all of a sudden I got to church and I can remember the, the youth guy, not the youth guy, the, 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 the worship leader saying something like, maybe you had a bad week this week. Maybe you spilled coffee on your lap. Well, here you are at church and you know, Jesus is here to restore you. I was like, well, your Jesus is really small right now, man. I, I yeah. need a bigger Jesus, yeah. right? I, not that I don't think you spilling coffee in your lap could have disrupted your day. It can disrupt your sure. day. But what Jesus yeah. does is restore broken people and and, mm-hmm. and on a level that is sometimes difficult for us to grasp. So that's why that story is yeah. so great. I remember just my heart was broken when I was reading that story. Yeah. Uh, so mm-hmm. yeah, the idea of God, but God restores. He, he just restores. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we when we yeah. give it over to him exactly yeah and it, it has been helpful just in my personal relationship with the lord um yeah. i've never had an abortion but i have sinned you know i'm yeah. just as much a sinner as anyone else out there and recognizing the the work that he does on our behalf on the cross the work that he did he accomplished um and that applies as well to my own sins you know yep. Um, there's a, and I can't remember, I'm so bad at remembering references, but, um, in, in the new Testament, <laughs> there's a verse where, um, there's a list of like, uh, you know, adulterers, fornicators, you know, um, uh, liars and murderers, you know, such were some of you. And, and this is, this is a letter to Christians in the church, such were some of you. And I just, I like to think about that. Like, you know, every believer was one of those you know whatever it is we were all one of those but but we've been washed we've been cleansed by the blood of christ and that is such such an encouraging reality and i'm so thankful that we got to talk about that in the book as well um just talk about the gospel and how it applies to this situation of abortion so i would and i want to i'll close on this for me and then i'll give you one chance to say whatever you want to say as we, we go out one of the things i found that I liked the most about reading the book was that you, you were both so intentional about when you were reminding us that there was a, a victim, right? In every yeah. chapter, it's like anytime, cause, cause I've written about, I wrote for Christian research journal. I think it was last year, an article about making abortion safer. This idea that, that this push that abortion is getting safer and safer and safer. And mm-hmm. the, that you guys did such a great job in every chapter as the abortion procedure becomes safer, as modern science and medical practices, as, as we get the under, more understanding of, of development, as we get antibiotics, as all of these things enter in and the number of abortions go higher and the women die less, 
You yeah. guys do a great job at not letting us forget that even though the tragedy of the loss of life of women is not as prevalent as it was in this story early on, every successful abortion ends an innocent human life. There yeah. is a mm-hmm. victim. No matter how safe we make it, there is a victim. And that was one of the things yeah. that I genuinely appreciated that y'all were so intentional about keeping that in every single chapter. Yeah. Well, good. Cause that's something we, we were trying to do. <laughs> so Great. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> well yeah, done. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Thank and did you. you have anything you would like to say before you leave us on this fine day? Well, thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed this conversation. So yeah, thank you so much oh. for asking me about my book and yeah, it's my been pleasure. Fun. Absolutely. And if you ever find yourself sitting around saying, I got three things I want to run by Jay, just send me a message and we'll get you right back on. <laughs> it, was, it was great okay. to have you on. Yeah. Thanks Jay. I really have- appreciate it. Thank you, Leah. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for the Human Things Podcast again. If you enjoyed the content, go to merelyhumanministries.org and you can contribute to our cause there. And we look forward to bringing more. Have a great day.